This week on the show, we list five key reasons for an OpenZFS performance audit, the ping from hell and trains, OpenBGPD 7.9 release, Rachel by the Bay is setting the clock ahead to see what breaks, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 502, Ping from Hell, recorded on the 29th of March 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. I think at this point we should make some kind of disclaimer. Uh, this whole episode was not written by an AI. No parts of it, as far as we know. We all curated all the articles in it nicely together. And we have a human that does all the show notes editing for us. So it's all human produced, right? So it's not like ChatGPT, yeah, no. create me a BSD Now show notes uh, episode with feedback from random stuff. Right. This well, I mean, of, of course, but not the hosts. The hosts are AI. Yeah. The, the well, content is made by a person, but Benedict and I were just robots. Yeah, they they will never know. And Don't so cut us at a conference to check. We're, voices we're are easy robots. to uh, duplicate. Yeah. yeah. So perfectly we'll authentic. And since that is now out of the way, let's jump into the headlines, which gives you another Clara article, giving you exactly five key reasons why you need an OpenZFS performance audit. And if you hear performance, you know this sounds good, right? Because everyone wants that. Okay, so here goes. The demands on your infrastructure are growing. Do you know where to look to turbocharge your OpenZFS infrastructure? Uh -huh. So that's the headline. Uh, the demand for storage is constantly growing, right? Whoever has shrunken their Z pool recently, no one. Okay. And for more than just capacity, as applications and workloads continually demand more IOPS and lower latencies. To expand your storage infrastructure to meet the evolving demands, you must understand where the limits of your current system lie. Only then you can plan to expand or, or to provide the capacity, durability, and performance that modern applications demand. So here's reason number one. You can only fix what you know. With modern storage systems, every specification has at least somewhat variable and situation-dependent. Yeah. Even the usable capacity can be variable. Modern storage systems use transparent compression to offer increased storage capacity, and how much extra storage is gained is entirely dependent on how compressible the data being stored is. Uh -huh. Yeah, so for IOPS and latency, a lot can depend on the block size, the locality, the transport mechanism, and even the temperature of the device. When it comes to performance, there are numbers uh, in the product specs and marketing. And then there is what the system is actually able to achieve when deployed in the field. It turns out that while you paid for the first number, it is the latter that you must work with. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. A storage performance audit examines your storage solution as deployed, measures its real-world performance for different workloads. So, question is, what should you expect from a performance audit, right? They list a couple of things here. The usable pre-compression storage capacity and how much of it remains. Then there's the projected remaining capacity, 
considering the existing workloads and compression ratios. Another one is the system's maximum throughput at various block sizes, and of the system's I.O. operations per second at various block sizes, and the latency of each I.O. Right? The next is the time to first byte for random reads. And last one is the latency of both asynchronous and synchronous writes. Uh, all of these need to be considered. Reason number two they list as know what your OpenZFS system can do. So after uh, observing the performance of your storage infrastructure, we compare this to the expected performance. If the system should be capable of doing much better performance, the bottlenecks will need to be identified, measured, analyzed, and resolved. And they have a bolder section here where they say there may be tuning that could improve the performance of the system, but the various trade-offs need to be considered and tested to ensure there are no unexpected side effects. Is there some setting misaligned of your workload, which is ruining throughput unnecessarily? Are there any best practices that are not being followed, limiting the system's performance? And that is exactly what this uh, performance audit will identify and troubleshoot and help uh, you get a better understanding or even a faster system by uh, various means. Okay. There's reason number three, identify if your system can handle the next workload, right? Or if you're already hitting the ceiling. Applications and workloads are constantly evolving and growing, and new applications arrive every year. Can your storage infrastructure handle the next workload you add to it? Without a performance audit, you know what your system is currently capable of, uh, or to know what your current system is uh, capable of, and metrics to know how much of that available ca performance capacity is already being consumed, it is difficult to plan for the future. Knowing how much performance headroom remains is a key input when deciding if it is time to expand your storage infrastructure. If you are underutilizing your current storage, you might be able to consolidate workloads or add additional applications without needing to buy additional hardware. Knowing how much slack there is in your current system is the only way to intelligently prepare for your future needs. Reason number four, the list implement quick fixes, right? Something can be done right away. If your storage infrastructure has plenty of storage capacity, not, but not enough IOPS, that might be fixable with just a small upgrade. Are your applications seeing latency spikes that are disrupting your users? Could these spikes be resolved by adding a few small SSDs to reduce the latency of synchronous writes? Adding more RAM or flash-based caching can improve the performance of the busiest subset of your data. Using a dedicated metadata device to offload precious IOPS from your spinning rust drives can transform an array from a laggard into a powerhouse. These quite small changes can often alleviate critical performance bottlenecks without breaking the bank and without upending your entire storage infrastructure. And reason number five is better planning for the future of your storage. So knowing how much performance you have and how much of that is being consumed by today's applications is key to planning for the future. With continued supply storage or shortage, shortage, uh, getting additional storage components can involve long lead times and possibly substitutions due to the unavailability of the desired parts. This makes it even more important to avoid emergency buys by planning further ahead and making sure your infrastructure will be able to meet tomorrow's demands as well as today's. When expanding your storage infrastructure, it's important to understand what type of capacity you're adding and how it will impact the storage system's performance. You don't want to grow the system in the wrong direction, right? Simply providing more throughput frequently won't improve IOPS or latency along with it. And for each metric, you need to determine when you will need more and how much more. Only then can you plan how to lay out the new components to achieve these goals. And in conclusion, the uh, performance audit will reveal how well your system is currently performing, how well it should be performing, and suggest adjustments to 
get from the former to the latter. The audit report will also offer recommendations on minor upgrades that are likely to have outsized impacts to improve the performance of your storage. Understanding the current storage system and how it's being used are the first steps to planning to extend or expand or even replace it. Ensure your next upgrade delivers the performance you will need to keep up with the constantly growing demands for your apps and workloads. And the article has been written by Jim Salter. You know, got to go fast. Speaking of going fast, uh, next up we have an article from Bastian Reich on their blog, and it's Musings on Mobility, the ping from hell. Uh, there are trains, so they're going fast in Germany, but it'd be slow in the UK. Um, <laughs> they write, like many of us, I try to be conscious of my ecological footprint. As part of this, I tried to take the train whenever possible instead of flying. The European train network being kind of awesome and massive, I actually enjoyed the smoothness of the ride while traveling for leisure. During the pandemic, when air travel seemed like a really bad idea for a variety of reasons, I also wanted to see how well I could use the system for business travel. As an academic, business just means I may be reading papers, correcting papers, generally thinking about stuff, or at times, chatting with colleagues. All of these actions should not require a powerful internet connection, you would think. This post details some of my experiences when taking German trains and traveling around the southern parts of Germany. I want to focus specifically on the ping times indicating the general responsiveness of my internet connection. This is of course a highly sophisticated scientific experiment showing data that are totally not cherry-picked. Whenever available in the ICE, German's fastest and most luxurious train, I use the onboard Wi-Fi simulating, nay, living, the experience a simple traveler would have. Mobile connection still costs an arm and a leg in Germany. I only use my hotspot as a last resort. Here are some of my trips being graphed and slightly annotated. Let's start with the first trip. I always added a red line indicating whenever the ping time is lower, or I guess higher, uh, than 500 milliseconds. This is my personal breaking point, beyond which the internet feels like I'm trying to escape from prison with a spoon. Your mileage may vary though, and some people are known to already perceive times of 100 milliseconds as disastrous, just ask any gamer. Anyway, here's my graph. Now I can't explain a graph to you, but it's got some very nice consistent pings, but they frequently go up to 10 seconds, uh, and then you can he can see crossing a border into another county. The helpful arrow tells you at which point we cross the border to another county. This is a clear shift in the dynamical system, and also, dare I say it, a clear win for the usability. Overall, the internet felt quite sluggish on that trip, but things cleared up about halfway through. Here's a highly scientific repetition of that experiment, albeit with slight delay in logging since the principal investigator of the experiment somehow <clears throat> forgot to turn it all in. All in all, a similar pattern crossing into another county helps. And the ping goes from like a second to... Oh, it's a log scale, I can't guess where it is. Um, the track was slightly different though, as you can see by the fact that there are fewer peaks during which ping times grow until they may take longer than the age of the universe. Now for my third trip, I visited my parents who were living in what you might call a rural area. Socially, the trip was very nice and we had a great time. In terms of connectivity, it was a disaster. Um, the, the, the average for the pings is above a second. Uh, the ping times made internet essentially unusable for most of the trip. Everything slowed down to a trickle. This is what it must feel like to fall into a black hole. As Sartre famously said, hell is other people or having a slow internet connection. Lessons learned. I'm not sure what lessons to draw from this. 
as, as a generally impatient person that wants fast download speeds, I tend to see the time spent in the train as digital detox or a temporary banishment into one of the circles of hell. Both are fine with me, just like Dante's epic ends with paradise, so too will my trip end and bring me redemption, or at least deliver me to an, a destination with a better internet connection. A faster net? However, on the operating end of things, these experiences illustrate that the internet has become too bloated for its own good. Essentially, at slow speeds, most, if not all, websites are fully unusable. Content shift destroys all attempts at reading, and good luck downloading a PDF over a slow connection. In the end, we you will probably just get a corrupted file, and you'll have to start the process all over again. These are all things that we, the citizens of the internet, could fix, but I guess the slow connections are not exactly high on our list of priorities. And why should they be? We almost never have them when we are home. 4G, 5G, and beyond? The other elephant in the room that needs to be discussed in general is the general mobile network coverage in Germany and its trains. If we want people to make use of our great train network, we need to be able to incentivize that usage. Having a nice internet connection that could be used to actually do some work would be a large plus in my opinion. Who does not like who does not like staring wistfully out of the window thinking about how to formulate a poignant abstract for a conference deadline while sitting on a train? Admittedly, sometimes being offline can be nice. Maybe there should just be offline compartments in the train. But for all the creature comforts I enjoy as a passenger on a train, coffee, 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 other beverages, good seats, not destroying the environment too much. Why would a stable internet connection not be among them? To the future of travel. Mm. Cool. Yeah, very true with uh, what we uh, all know in Germany, that Wi-Fi on the trains has not been done. Uh, I, I wish I wish they'd done more just... science because like, I, a large fixed delay is terrible for interactivity. And so if you're browsing Reddit, it's going to be really painful because mm. you're clicking through lots of pages. Yeah, but, they load dynamically. And like stuff. using SSH would be annoying. There's, there's nothing you can do about this. But mm. uh, um, if the delay is stable, then for reasonable sized downloads, you shouldn't actually notice because you get like an upfront half second or so, and then stuff starts streaming in. And and so I imagine what's probably happening is if there, there might be loss, which would be annoying, but there might also just be a lot of delay variation, and you know like. A ha uh, you know, like a fifth of a second variation in the delay is going to make TCP really upset, so things will slow right down, hmm. and that might be the problem. So yeah, more measurements are needed. Please, please submit again. Yeah, yeah or just <laughs> Deutsche Bahn wants people to talk to each other instead of staring at computers. But, but Benedict, we could use science to convince <laughs> yeah, yeah, the German I know. government it, to do things. I hear good things about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just that they have started way too uh, late to get this actually into the trains, and then they of course have state or country specific uh, things would don't overlap so that's maybe a handover from one to the other that also causes the big delays and so i i don't know how deutsche banner servicing the wi-fi um in the uk for a long time it was using um sat like a vsat link mm. um i think now it might be more common to have 4g you might have a hybrid system so it, it might not actually be the train operator's fault that this is so bad. It might be the people they're buying the service from. That could also be, yeah, I'm not completely counting that out. <laughs> I mean, as, as plain Wi-Fi is getting better and better, uh, the, the, yeah, the train Wi-Fi might be the last thing where you have a quiet space and, uh, yeah, can actually enjoy Wi-Fi-less uh, life. But, yeah, to each his own. I'm doing a lot of train travels in the next couple of months to conferences 
uh, or just over the weekend. Uh, so I will be able to test this myself. <laughs> well, so you have to take the measurements, Benedict. I'll give you some scripts. To yeah, run. give me my uh, <laughs> the things to do so I'm not getting some bored on the, on the long runs. <laughs> Okay, um, we're staying a little bit with networks uh, as we are going into our news roundup this week. There is the new OpenBGPD 7.9 being released, the Open Border Gateway Protocol daemon. That's, of course, from Undeadly Orc, and that is from the Rebound Routing Department. So the announcement goes, we have released OpenBGPD 7.9, which will be arriving in the OpenBGPD directory of your local OpenBSD mirror soon, or by the time you listen to this episode, it already has. This release includes the following changes from the previous version. Uh, they include OpenBSD 7.2 errata 23. Incorrect length checks allow out-of-bounds read in BGPD. Oops. Okay, so that's uh, fixed. OpenBGPD Portable is known to compile and run on FreeBSD, and the Linux distributions Alpine, Debian, Fedora, Red Hat, uh, CentOS, and Ubuntu. It is our hope that packagers take interest and help Adopt OpenBGPD Portable to more distributions. Yes, please. We welcome feedback and improvements from the broader community. Thanks to all of the contributors who helped make this release possible. And they note at the bottom, the present release comes a little more than a week after the previous one and hopefully helps your routing setup to stay within bounds. So something related maybe. I recently learned that the ISC DHCP server uh, will be discontinued uh, and there's a follow-up, I think, Kia, K-E-A, uh, which is kind of the follow-up thing. Do you know something about this or don't you follow? I don't know DHCP anything about this. Okay. Yeah, let's, uh, DHC please, maybe is the next best thing. So yeah, check out the new routing daemon and get your packaging going if you are in the uh, business of writing packages for a distribution uh, that's other than uh, OpenBSD. Okay, next up we have a blog post from Rachel by the Bay. Um, she's writing about uh, time, um, which, you know, maybe she has some. It's about time, um, yeah. And this is, <laughs> this is titled, Setting the Clock Ahead to See What Breaks. Given that we're now within 15 years of the signed 32-bit time T craziness, I decided to start playing around with my own stuff to see how things would work. I wanted to see what would break and what would work. One thing I particularly wanted to see was how my smaller systems would work. It's basically a given that my 64-bit Linux boxes are going to be fine since time T is already wider and won't explode in 2038. But that's far from the whole story. 32-bit machines still exist and are more common than some people would like to think thanks to the existence of the Raspberry Pis. Unless you deliberately install the 64 flavor, 64 bit flavor of Raspberry, you're going to get a 32 bit system. With the version of GLibc is currently running, you will hit the wall. It's easy enough to try. You'll notice that you can't actually set the clock that far ahead. At date dash s 2038 01190314080 UTC, date says invalid date. So okay, put on your time to do evil hat. Set it one second earlier and wait for the fun to happen. Starting from scratch again, it does this. Um, system CTL stop crony, I guess stop network time. Set the date to one second before the apocalypse. Wait a second. Message from syslog D. Fail, system D failed to run main loop. Invalid argument. Oops. A broadcast message from system D journal D at raspberry rar pi 4b. Uh, and then it's a date timestamp, but with all X's. System D execution freezing. 
Yeehaw, look at that sucker burn. I do particularly dig the XXXX stuff. It's like a cartoon <laughs> character who's been knocked out. Now, before you whip out the pitchforks, keep in mind that System D is just the messenger here. It's just working with what it's been given. Also, the system is actually still up there. System D has just basically checked out and it's not going to do much more for you. It's not even going to take an odd ordinary reboot since that's really just a request to init PID1, so System D again, to reboot the box. We're going to need to use reboot-f and suffer whatever badness might happen to stuff on the box. It's like pulling the plug, so have fun with that. So what happened? If you dig around in the remains, you'll find that an assertion in System D fired is refusing to continue unless clock get time returns zero. Clearly it returns something else. System D saw this not zero value and decided to protect itself by effectively stopping. So you think, I know, I'll try this again and S trace PID1 this time and see what was in fact returned. You get something like this right before it croaks. Clock get time 64, clock real time sometime. What, it returned zero? Yes and no, look closely. Clock get time 64 returns zero, but system D called clock get time. S-Trace is showing you the system call, but that system call happens by the way of a C library function, which in this case is being provided by glibc. If you were to open up glibc's source and go digging around for clock get time, you'll find this. Uh, rat equals clock get time 64. Uh, if rat equals zero, uh, if not time and range, set error no e overflow minus one. First call, the 64 capable syscall. Then assuming that succeeds and it does per S trace, you find that it'll fit. You then see if it'll fit in a 32-bit time t. It won't. So set error no to e overflow and return minus one. Now that's what system D gets, so it blows up. glibc is saying, I can't fit this into that, so I'm failing this call. This is wrapped in a bunch of preprocessor if tests, such that it only runs when time size isn't set to 64. But guess what? On this particular combination of hardware and software, time size is in fact 32. Go over and in the headers, if you like, and follow the bouncing balls starting here. Um, it's a link to a file on timesize.h. Or just write something dumb like printf time size and c. To be clear, this is glibc 2.3.1 on the 32-bit build of Raspbian and Raspberry Pi OS 11 on a Pi 4B. Newer versions of the OS will almost certainly not behave this way since glibc itself is marching down the road to having 64-bit time, even on 32-bit machines. Once that's done and rolled up into a release, expect this to go away. And yes, NetBSD and OpenBSD and FreeBSD yeah. tore off this band-aid about 10 years ago and it's a done deal, I know, cheers to that. Do you still have your FreeBSD 1.0 installation? Yeah, it's here. Ah, have you tried that particular stunt on that version? No, but I mean, um, i386 FreeBSD is 32-bit time, but everything else is 64-bit. Yeah. So, so that will FreeBSD happen. 13 would also have this problem. Yeah, okay. Just to see what I haven't, happens. I haven't tried moving the BIOS to 2038. That'd be interesting. Okay. The BIOS is happy with 2023, which surprised me. Yeah, I probably didn't expect to live that long. But it's happy with it, so I, I don't mind. Mm, okay. So yeah, uh, people try this out uh, in a safe environment before the zombie apocalypse happens. And then, uh, yeah. You well, if the zombie apocalypse is triggered by this bug, Benedict. Oh, you think really they're bad. related? Oh, I yeah, they could be. Yeah, right. So I should build my castle out of, uh, you know. Pentium 2s. <laughs> yeah, with the spikes showing outside. <laughs> Excellent. Why haven't I? Uh, yeah, I'll start building over the weekend. Um, <laughs> my castle out of sand. All right. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, 
but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. TarSnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Uh, let's get into our feedback and questions section, which we have luckily filled by people who were kind enough to write to us to feedback at BSDNow.tv in particular. And these are the ones we're covering today. Uh, Esteban is the first with a question about pot. No, not that kind of pot. Come on, people. Uh, goes like this. Hi, I have been listening lately to your podcast and I love it. Thank you. Thanks for all the info and keep up the good work. Yeah, we will. Thank you. That's nice feedback. Uh, I wanted to point out an interesting project on the FreeBSD space. It is called FreeBSD Pod out of the GitHub repo. Quote, another container framework based on jails to run FreeBSD containers on FreeBSD. Every running instance is called Pod, like the one that I used to cook all the different type of pasta. Excellent. Uh, it's heavily based on FreeBSD, in particular on jails, ZFS, PF, and RCTL. Unquote. No, not yet. Uh, the project's initial goal was to prove that FreeBSD has all the technologies to have a container-like environment. The project can evolve into something more robust and feature-rich. Unquote. Uh, yep, the project documentation can be found at uh, Peter Miglio's website, pod.pizzameek.dev. And uh, he's not alone, but he started it, I think, and uh, a couple of people joined his efforts. There's also a Docker Hub-like page for already made recipes under its podluck.honeyguide.net. I thought it may yep. be something interesting for the listeners of this podcast. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is totally. Um, we actually wrote an article about pot on FreeBSD for Clara um, 18 months ago and then covered it on this podcast. So, yeah, it's definitely of interest. Thanks for highlighting it again. Um, if you want to get involved in something like that, I'm sure Luca would enjoy contributors. Mm -hmm. Okay, next we have a comment from Tim. Tim says, hi all. Hi, Tim. Uh, I intended a BSD talk at scale 20x, which I think merits coverage by your podcast. It's called Cloud Native FreeBSD, presented by Karen Bruner. It covers efforts to make FreeBSD a first-class K8 citizen, e.g. getting ContainerD and Podman ported, creating OCI-compliant images. Here's a link to its page on the Scale website. I believe... Individual videos for each presentation will be made available, but in the meanwhile, you should be able to locate it in YouTube by searching the feed and going to um, 16 minutes 30 to 17 minutes 30. No, the time 1630 to 1730. Thanks, Tim. I, I, I was aware of Karen. I tried to invite... Um, her to speak at EuroBSDCon last year. So if anybody knows Karen and would like to put her in touch with me, I'd love to um, figure out if there's something we could do to get her to come to... Um, Portugal this year? I can't remember. Yeah, Portugal, but I can't remember the name of the city. 
uh, Coimbra. Coimbra. Hopefully yeah, that's so many properly pronounced. Yeah, the call for paper is out now. Uh, that's kind of a sidetrack here for uh, Europe. Do you like the artwork? The artwork's really good. Yeah, on the website. Yeah, I like it. Uh, Great artwork. So yeah, uh, um, people should check this out because yeah, cloud native FreeBSD is definitely a thing. Okay, and next is Fred. That has a bit of a tone uh, but it's understandable given the circumstances you will see why okay it's a bit longer but starts like this i have lost the whole work day trying to figure this out how much time did you lose trying to connect to an open non-encrypted public wi-fi network when your etcrc.conf line is if config underscore wlan zero equals wpa dhcp uh, I've lost the whole workday, and that has uh, been re had repeated a couple times in the message. Uh, trying to figure this out. How much time did you lose trying to connect to an open, non-encrypted public Wi-Fi network? And they list a uh, link on the FreeBSD forums, or actually a couple of them, to where this thing is discussed. Um, the WPA supplicant will not connect to an open, non-encrypted network if you leave text string WPA in the file etcrc conf line and only set this to DHCP. Uh, this is a problem for connecting from FreeBSD using a WPA PSK Wi-Fi access point setup normally for company or home, and then go on a trip and try to connect to a hotel or McDonald's or Burger King or whatever public library maybe, Wi-Fi network access point that is open and non-encrypted. Okay, WPA supplicant command should silently figure out to drop the WPA because you select to connect to an open network. At least it should ask, are you sure you meant to connect to an open, non-encrypted network, SSID, hotel, <laughs> Rapunzel, or give a loud razzle-up audio error? <laughs> in Toucan, Sam's voice. Yeah, I can't do that. Okay, at least mention the error in D message, okay? I have lost a whole day work of work trying to figure this out. How much time did you lose? Uh, that's a repetition here. Your mind's eye and repetitive use of I always put in the text string WPA. It has to be there uh, or the connection does not work with double WPA uh, encrypted Wi-Fi access point. You forget, oh, this hotel network is open, baby, open. And I shan't use WPA with my DHCP uh, connection. You know where this is going. You can kind of see the, the hate and the yeah, frustration there. Let gurus who go out on conferences figure out a solution. Send a note to BSD Now, the TV show developers listen to their content. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, there's a bit more. Uh, a little further down. I felt that you might like to explain in your witty banter this during your questions section. For an answer, read the code, the manual, and ask your local developer of WPA supplicant code by the end user uh, why the end user has to be so knowledgeable as to be a Unix guru and know by heart open networks don't use WPA to make a Wi-Fi connection exactly because it is open. See that is how it is supposed to work and how the rules are plainly clear. Use DHCP or open non-encrypted networks. Use WPA DHCP or WPA PSK encrypted networks. This is very logical and follows the rules. You can understand now, correct? Uh, and then goes off stage mumbling about Windows and Mac make it easy for the end user. Yeah, okay, so there's a couple more links to the GhostBSD forums, uh, where this is uh, for a USB Wi-Fi dongle, a similar discussion. Have fun, pick and choose what you say, enjoy making a lighthearted point about end-user usability with Wi-Fi connections on FreeBSD. I think App Network Manager for FreeBSD, Dragonfly, and GhostBSD makes them better BSDs on the desktop for Wi-Fi connections. Okay, that's the rant or the frustration. Thanks, Fred. 
yeah, I, I've lost a lot of time to configuring open networks with WPA supplicant because it's not in the man page, but it's sort of in the man page. Um, WPA supplicant supports them with key management non, as as your example is. You just have to remember that. Um, you oh. can run WPA CLI, which ships in FreeBSD, and just add a network on the fly. But I don't recommend that. Um, the I mean, there is a network manager. There are network manager applications that work on FreeBSD. You would need to install them. In the end, you're if you compare FreeBSD and GhostBSD, you're comparing different things because one of them is tuned more for a desktop. But yeah, I mean, it's hard. Um, it should be. You can also just configure um, Wi-Fi with ifconfig for non um, encrypted, non WP encrypted networks. You can just do ifconfig SSID and the SSID and then DH client. But don't do that. Use WPA supplicant. It's easier to control. Yeah, it should definitely be something in the handbook for people who are looking in there. Uh, you know, but I think you know the tool that ships as part of BSD install for choosing the Wi-Fi network. It might even just be a tool you can run. Mm. But I think it's hard to find someone to actually implement this now. That uh, this is kind of a don't do this thing anyway. So we don't add support for this. But of course, you need I mean, this, especially when you're at airports or hotels or open Wi-Fi uh, networks which are still around. Uh, and you hopefully also understand the security implications that everyone can read the traffic from uh, these open networks. But sometimes you don't have the, the choice, right? I mean, you should like, I'm not going to start. I mean, so the tools as part of BSD install, you can just run. So, you, I mean, these are just shell scripts. So you can run BSD install, net install, and it will give you the configuration set of the installer i think it keeps going so i'm not sure how safe that is to run it would be cool if the installer parts were just available post install because some of them are really useful like if you want to get jails you can do bsd install jail to install the jail for the snapshot and it's very very easy um anyway yeah thanks for the complaint fred i understand we're happy yeah. to take code um it's definitely frustrating how it's also a thing you kind of are persistent and how hard could this be right i will figure this out i'm an engineer i can use google uh or stack overflow uh but is that isn't that a certain point where you're like okay i've bitten my teeth too deep into it and the hours went by without doing anything else at what point are you actually <laughs> giving up or calling for help Right. Well, and the problem with well is that once you've done this once, you know it's possible and it's easy. But finding yeah. out how to do it is really hard, uh, and so I understand the pain. Yeah. Um, and the people who have been through it don't talk about it because they might look shamed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or people will laugh at them. But of course, there's pain points, and we all had to learn some things the hard way. Um, but maybe this post here and. The reach we have with our little podcast here will help other people who are listening to this will definitely now know what to do. And maybe that helps you a little bit that other people may be prevented from this frustration. Okay, but definitely good uh, to know about this and make this more publicly aware. And uh, yeah, maybe that's a good way to end this show here. Uh, we've covered a couple of things. And of course, there will be more in another episode. What else is there? There was kind of a mobility episode this way. We have no Wi-Fi at all. We have Wi-Fi on trains in Germany, which are not good. And there's others. Uh, there's hopeful other stuff in uh, you know the things we covered here. New BGPD and uh, networks are interesting. I can definitely sell and tell. <laughs> Let's see what other uh, episodes bring for you. Uh, we'll be back in another episode next time.